Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of The Ken Show. My name is Corey DeVos. I'm joined, as always, by Ken Wilbur. Ken, how are you doing today, man? Good, my friend. Good. So I thought what we would do today, Ken, is we've spent the last several episodes uh, talking about sort of what's been happening politically, uh, culturally, socially around, around uh, this country and around the world. And we've been discussing in particular sort of this, this, this massive regression that we've been seeing in both parties, in both the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. And, you know, after doing the last few episodes together, uh, where we've been, you know, I think doing a really uh, good job of laying down a, a very useful groundwork that we can use to, to, to carry these conversations forward, I thought today what we would do is spend a little bit of time trying to separate some of the virtues of liberalism in particular from some of its vices, basically, you know, saving the baby while flushing the bathwater away. Um, and hopefully we can do this in a way that, that can, you know, point the way towards a more healthy liberalism, as well as to a more integral approach to politics and governance in general. Um, so today I've highlighted uh, five topics that are, you know, really near and dear to the liberal heart. And um, each of these five issues, I think, has been really corrupted in a lot of ways by the regressive elements that we've been talking about, both on the left and on the right. So again, I thought what we would do is take a look at some of these issues one by one. Uh, we can identify basically the healthy green versions um, that we'd most like to include in a more integral embrace and eliminate the unhealthy regressive amber versions that you know, so many of these have devolved into particularly over the last couple of years. Uh, and then what we could do is basically offer a more integral approach to each of these points. So does that, does that sound good to you? You bet. Awesome. Well, the first piece that we're gonna talk about today is inclusivity and tolerance. Um, you know, liberals really like to think of themselves as the party of tolerance and inclusion, the big tent party. And you know, they've got this like massive index of all these intersectional identities that, that it uses to to basically prove how radically inclusive it is. And yet, you know, it really seems like most liberals seem to find themselves stuck in either, you know, what Karl Popper called the paradox of tolerance, which we'll talk about in just a moment, or else they've sort of devolved into this exclusionary kind of condescending us versus them mentality that, you know, they're using the same slogans and sound bites of tolerance, but they're, they're enacted in a way that's every bit as ethnocentric and discriminatory as the most conservative groups that they're criticizing. Uh, and again, for those who aren't familiar, um, you know, I wanted to read this really brief quote. Here's what Karl Popper had to say about tolerance versus intolerance. He says, less well-known is the paradox of tolerance. Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. Let me read that again. Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance, even to those who are intolerant, if we're not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance, the right to not tolerate the intolerant. And again, that was Karl Popper. So in other words, Ken, as you like to say, you know, to transcend and include is simultaneously to negate and preserve. In other words, you know, we don't want sort of a reckless inclusion. We don't, you know, we don't include our cancer cells. We, we negate the tumors for the health of the total organism. 
tolerance is obviously critical. It's, it's massively important, but not to the point of tolerating intolerance. Now, you know, it seems to me that this word tolerance, when it gets enacted at the green level, it, it often skews too far in the direction of inclusivity, right? So everything gets included, everything gets flattened, and there's no real way to sort of discern what's more or less worthy of that inclusion. But when this value, when the same value of tolerance gets enacted at the amber regressive level, it immediately becomes just riddled with contradiction. Um, there's no longer an effort to include the rich diversity of views and values and perspectives that are available to us. Instead, you know, we only include the people who explicitly share these same values about inclusion. Um, we include everyone except those assholes who don't think we should include anyone. You know, fuck those guys. And, you know, this, this really isn't, this has nothing to do with the paradox of intolerance. This is, this is a paragon of intolerance. So I'm wondering, Ken, what do you, you know, what do you think about this? What are, what are some sort of appropriate constraints on tolerance and inclusivity? And how do you think liberals and progressives can do a better job including and, you know, even enfolding with their political opposition or simply with people who don't share their same political views? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting if you look at um, historically the rise of these political issues. And as we pointed out a bit earlier, um, the liberal political philosophy itself was a relatively recent emergent. And it really came into existence when world-centric stages of development had become about that 10% leading edge of the population. And this really only started around 1700s, uh, 1800s uh, in the modern West. Um, there were always individuals in the past who were advanced or highly evolved, however we want to uh, um, view that. Um, that had access to a lot of these higher stages of development. But as culture itself on the whole sort of moved along, um, that was a little bit slower process. Um, and we didn't really see the emergence of about 10% of the population at Orange, which also meant a movement in moral development from the previous amber, which is strictly ethnocentric, to orange, rational, world-centric um, modes of, of awareness. And this was, this was quite new. So because it focused on rationality for the first time, instead of the previous cognitive stage, which is what Gebser referred to as mythic, um, these started to, um, for the first time, talk about something that was referred to as universal rights. And this is quite different. Previously, you tended to have um, individuals, theorists, writers, leading edge thinkers, who would talk about your rights as, let's say, a Christian, um, and the rights you lose if you surrender your belief in Christianity, or your rights he has a Frenchman versus an Englishman, or something like that. But with the Western Enlightenment, we start to see all of these treatises on the universal rights of human beings. And that wasn't the right that you had because you were 
Christian or because you were French or because you were this or you were that, but simply by virtue of the fact that you were born a human being. And that was, just, that was a radically new idea. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's also the reason that it was only during that period as those values began to kind of permeate culture that humanity finally figured out that slavery is a rotten way to treat a human being. So uh, even during the great axial period, when all the world's great religions were laid down, the core of them was often um, a mythic literal stage of spiritual development. Um, They also tended to have small schools that were involved with waking up practices. And those are really crucially important. And they included the great authentic mystics, Zen Buddhists, uh, Abated Vedanta, and so on. But still, the cultural center of gravity itself tended to be at this mythic, literal level. And so the religions themselves were separate. Um, and again, at that time, there really wasn't much choice. There were a few people that um, whether there was little awareness that there was anything like global village, for example, it just wasn't an idea that anybody realized at that point. Um, And so as these universal rights first appeared, they almost sort of, not that it was a good thing, but it was sort of human nature that they were first applied to the people that had power. And in, in the modern West, that basically meant able-bodied, white, cisgendered, heterosexual males. Um, and they were all considered equal. Um, that everybody else, not so much. But the principle itself was so unlimited. It, it never, ever said, okay, just this group or just that group has equal rights. The claim was everybody has equal rights. And so that in the coming years, that was just increasingly applied to more and more and more um, human beings, which really was an enormous emancipation um, around the world, certainly in countries that were uh, adopting this. And so it was applied to, in America, for example, it was applied to to, uh, black men, then it was applied to women, there's a continual push from liberals and uh, even far left to apply it, you know, just to more and more and more, anywhere you can find a minority that had previously not achieved widespread acceptance, then this becomes uh, um, a source of activism. So one of the latest is is transgender rights, for example. very, very small percentage of the population, but certainly as deserving uh, of equal rights as, as anybody. When that, when that liberal philosophy itself was first introduced and we had people um, from John Stuart Mill to John Locke, the notion of tolerance was a central idea. Because one thing that was certain is that the previous stage, amber ethnocentric stages of development, Claire Graves, by the way, the the upper three major stages of first tier, Mm -hmm. um, amber, orange, and green, 
Claire Grange referred to those as absolutistic, which was amber. And so it held a belief and it just thought that was absolutely unalterably true. So if you were a Christian at an amber ethnocentric stage, you believed every word that was written in the Bible. It was the absolute word of God. Moses really did part the Red Sea. Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt. That's all absolutely true. And that's the absolutistic stage. But as this third person perspective continued to be added, and you could do hypothetical deductive reasoning and actually carry that out, then you start to get the rise of a modern scientific approach instead of a more second person, mythic, literal, ethnocentric approach. Mm -hmm. So if you're at an amber ethnocentric stage, tolerance is not your concern. Um, your concern is a cohesion within like-minded believers. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's not a believer, not only do you have no tolerance for them, you actually consider them in many cases to be demonic. Um, they're certainly, uh, it's okay to attack them, um, even kill them, murder them. Um, some 300,000 witches were burned during the Middle Ages. Um, most of them women, by the way. Um, but when this whole orange world-centric moral stance, um, technically also called post-conventional, um, when that started to emerge, the writers on that, one of the primary virtues that they listed was tolerance. And that orange understanding of tolerance, uh, none of them had any trouble with saying just straightforwardly that by tolerance we mean we tolerate everybody except those who are intolerant. We don't tolerate that because it defeats the whole purpose. So that, that wasn't much of a, a Popperian paradox at, at that point. It's fairly straightforward. Um, and none of them really considered it to be any sort of logical contradiction or anything like that. You first start to get the green stage emerging in any sort of significant degree during the 60s. So as I pointed out uh, a couple of times, in 1959, around 3% of the American population was at green pluralistic. Graves actually referred to green as relativistic. And that's important because amber was absolutistic and then Graves called orange multiplistic. And that was simply because, again, it introduced a third-person perspective. So it could start to take um, universal third-person viewpoints and begin to realize that there were a lot of other types of perspectives that were available. Orange still tended to think that science is the best way to find truth, but they recognized there are lots of other kinds of perspectives there, and you really had to look at those carefully. Mm -hmm. And not all of those were open to scientific verification. So you had to be really aware of that, that kind of situation. But by the time you get to green relativism, that bond to any sort of objective truth or confirmable value system, that was broken. Mm. Because it really was adding a kind of fourth person perspective. And that could look at all these orange, like universal sciences, 
for example, orange didn't have Hindu chemistry versus Christian chemistry. It just had chemistry. Right. And so green would look at that and go, well, yeah, but wait a minute. Um, and so green did tend to be highly reflexive of orange systems. And green also has a kind of inherently critical attitude because it's reflecting on all those things and it's just going, well, wait a minute, that's, that doesn't really include all these multiple uh, cultural differences. And so green would eventually be associated with terms like multiculturalism and inclusivity and diversity. One of the issues, of course, is that a real inclusivity uh, gets greater and greater with each major stage of development. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so even amber was more inclusive than, than the previous egocentric stages. And then multiplistic was more inclusive than amber absolutistic. And in green, at least in terms of how we could conceptually think of things, took even more perspectives than orange. The problem was that whereas green tended to differentiate orange systems, and instead of just this monolithic single universal system, everything was multicultural truths and everything was different from culture to culture. And you really couldn't make any statement that applied to all human beings. Those are now out, they're not allowed. Mm -hmm. And you would even have somebody like the entire California educational system, Berkeley, UCLA, all of them, um, would come out and say, quote, the claim that there's only one race, the human race, is a racist statement. So they're getting hyper, hyper sensitive yep. to these kinds of things. And in ways where that possibility of paradox of, of tolerance becomes really a kind of foremost issue and one that Green never really learned to handle well. And one of the major reasons, again, is that although it could differentiate all these systems, it didn't really have enough cognitive capacity to actually integrate them in a, in a believable, accurate, and, and fair fashion. That would happen only with that monumental leap to second tier and the unfolding of stages that most developmentalists actually refer to in terms like integrative or integral. Um, systemic, those types of things. So part of the difficulty, well, by the way, also when that green value system was added, what we really had in culture at large now, even though most developmental models have around six to eight major stages of development. So there are several stages leading up to amber uh, many models have two stages or so of amber. Uh, some have two substages of orange, that kind of thing. But we're talking just very generally in very mm -hmm. sort of overview way. Um, and the, the um, emergence of um, amber 
became sort of the leading cultural edge, um, particularly in even a lot of modern Western countries where the, that leading edge had been at Orange. Um, but as Orange continued to grow and expand, those became the two major value systems in most Western cultures. And of course, a lot of others that you can um, come up with if you, if you look at people's quadrant preferences or different personality types, uh, big five factor and all that. All of those will give you sort of different types of values and they're all important. These major stages of development are really probably the single largest contributor to value uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. And when there are only two, amber and orange, basically, although again, there are you know, six or so smaller divisions of that. But with these two major value systems, they basically got along relatively okay, uh, although they did recognize that they had some major differences. And that's essentially where the two-party system arose. And that's where the, the two political values that we call left and right originate from those major two structures. Mm -hmm. So if we go back and, and during the emergence of the orange liberal, and it was correctly called liberal, that was the new philosophy that came into existence to represent that orange universal world-centric stage of development. And it just so happened that in the French Assembly, the believer, the old-time believers who wanted to conserve the present ethnocentric culture, they happen to sit in the right-hand side of the French Assembly. And these new upstart, newfangled, orange liberal folks sat in the left-hand seats. So they uh, were often just referred to as left and right. And, and we continue to keep those definitions. But then one of the things that happened starting in the 60s, is we got the emergence of that third major value structure. And that basically threw everything into turmoil. Because now we don't just have, you know, two sort of fairly obviously different choices. We have a third. And given that they're all first tier, all of them really basically despise each other. Yeah. Um, and so what we started to get in the 60s was the, um, the beginning of what we would come to call the culture wars. And green itself, as a relativistic structure, one of its sort of main um, original impetuses was again to be critical of orange and how it sort of had this monolithic uh, universality and and green would start to criticize that and say well wait a minute they really are multicultural truths and we have to take those into account and the problem was it really was relativistic so again it really couldn't prioritize any culture or any truths for that matter and the leading postmodern and this is called postmodern because orange had initiate the era of modernity as opposed to the previous amber ethnocentric, which are known as traditional values. Well, as orange introduced and dirty, when green came in, it really began defining itself as post-modern. And it would also, 
and this is sort of an important distinction. If we just look at the left and the right, um, and it's important right, right now to separate that from what we call Republican and uh, Democrat Republican, because those, how those represented left and right is actually kind of shifted a bit uh, over the years. Um, what we call Democrats, for example, that we normally think of as left and liberal, um, they ended up being um, the party that was in favor of slavery during the Civil War. All of the Jim Crow laws passed after the Civil War were passed by Democratic um, um, assemblies, had Democratic governors. Uh, the KKK was started as the military arm of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's, it's really not a pleasant history. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost always covered up. Um, but as, as we tended to move forward, there tended to be a bit of a shift between how those are represented. And, mm -hmm. and Republicans tended, at least hardcore Republicans tended to start representing more of that uh, ethnocentric uh, absolutistic traditional state yep. values. Yeah, which can just just briefly, which is why today the the party of Lincoln are the ones that are often defending the the the, uh, the Confederate flag, for example, and all the you know the statues and things like that. So well, yeah. that, that's right. Yeah. And what happened in the '60s, though, was that the Democrats. Um, so let me go back now to just technically left and right. Mm -hmm. the, um, the left, which had, um, which was indeed the original liberal, um, that was faced, they're also often called progressives, because being rational and science oriented, they accepted evolutionary theory and progression forward. Whereas the right, the true conservatives, they didn't buy it. They much more still adopted a belief in the mythic religion. They held that that was what was really extremely important. They're highly patriotic, nationalistic, and so on. Whereas there's always a progressive tendency because liberals recognized universal equality of all people that there is also a tendency to be sort of less focused on patriotism in your own um, identity and think more about a global humanity. That was sort of where your, your sentiments like. But when Green emerged in the 60s, and by 1972, Jacques Derrida was the most frequently quoted academic writer in America, and over 10% of the population was at Green. So Green had reached a tipping point. And the Green itself be, referred to itself as postmodern, also often referred to itself as post-liberal, because it, they, they really, Green didn't like orange. Well, no first-tier stage likes each other. So, <laughs> so what we had with those three value system is we have a saying, two's company, three's crowd. Well, all of a sudden, we went from two, amber and orange, to three, mm. amber, orange, and green. And that was the beginning of the culture wars. That was a real problem. And the, the difficulty is that the Democrats in this case, meaning leftists, they tended, and I don't know how many of them exactly, I'll just say half, 50%, half of them bumped up to green because they were progressives and they were just moving forward. 
in the old time liberals, old time leftists stayed in orange. Mm -hmm. But then the traditional conservatives that were anchored at, at amber ethnocentric, they also bumped up a stage into orange liberal values. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, sort of strangely, it's sort of odd bedfellows that this new kind of right orientation was now advancing liberal values. These people became the ones that would vocally support something like free speech. Whereas the new left, the green Democrats, they don't like free speech that much. They're fine with controlling it even. 40% um, of millennials say they have no problem with the government controlling speech. Mm. Um, so we really have this, this tension now in both parties. In the liberal Democratic Party, we have the old liberals that have really been pushed to the background. And then we have the new left, which is green and multicultural and it's most commonly mentioned values are inclusivity and diversity. Um, and they're not really, they really have pushed their sort of older Democrats aside. Although you see them go back and forth and back and forth, and particularly when it comes to presidential politics. Mm. Uh, Al Gore went back and forth daily. He'd yeah. come out one day and he'd go there, and then he'd come out the next day and say just the opposite and go orange and then he'd go green. Hillary had a hard time. She finally settled on green. Um, a bit of a mistake. Um, but yeah, there was that divide between Bernie and Hillary, where I think this fault line really, I mean, it became obvious. And we still have it today with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez versus right. the rest of the Democratic sort of neoliberal uh, establishment. That's right. And part of the problem with green is that it really is... Um, becoming um, sort of so inclusive, but without any real understanding of how to bring diverse elements together. Right. And one of the major problems, as just a simple example, is th this green value itself, and I'll also contrast it by saying that if you go back to original orange liberal, um, because it was a move from ethnocentric or just some groups have rights and values and so on to world centric where there's an explicit drive to treat all people fairly regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. That's original liberal. And that's um, particularly the demand that there's absolutely equal opportunity for every race, color, sex, or creed mm -hmm. in the society. And it really does mean, um, I sometimes use the example, it's like if you're running a hundred meter dash in, in the Olympics, equal opportunity means everybody who's qualified to run that race gets to run that race. Nobody's excluded because of their race or sex or gender or creed or religious belief. None of that. Anybody who's qualified to run the race gets to run the race. That's mm -hmm. equal opportunity. And that was what orange liberal approaches brought. That's what tended to be instituted in representative democracies. 
Um, and it was a major, major step forward. Well, among other things, it was almost solely responsible for humanity actually getting rid of slavery. Um, so even back into the rise of the great religions, every single one of them had slavery. None of them objected. Mm -hmm. uh, Buddhist monasteries had slaves. Christian monasteries had slaves. Uh, I, my, my favorite one was St. Paul's admonition to slaves to quote, obey your master and love Jesus Christ. It's like, really? That's the best Christian advice. Uh, but all of a sudden, by the time you get to the rise of modernity with orange rational Western Enlightenment, in about a 100 year period from 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed in every single rational industrial country on the face of the planet. Nothing like that ever, ever happened. Um, and so, so that equal opportunity was an absolutely central foundation of, of the rise of modern uh, uh, representative democracies and a great movement for equality uh, across the board. Now, what happens when we get to green is that there's still that drive to be inclusive but it's getting, getting more and more intense. And the problem is it's run right up to the top of first tier. So really, again, it can differentiate all of those, but it can't yet integrate them and make the leap to second tier. Mm -hmm. And so it just gets very, very, very intense in demanding equality. And here in particular, the demand isn't just for equal opportunity, because you can still have everybody have equal opportunity, but if some people have any sort of intrinsic advantage for whatever reason, um, it could be biological, it could just be their interest. Um, maybe some groups just aren't interested in doing mathematics or in learning how to play a grand piano or something like that. And so they end up being disproportionately represented in, in in those professions. Hmm. All of that disturbed Green. And what Green wanted is what's often called equal outcome. So in the 100 meter Olympic dash, Green doesn't just want everybody to start at the same time. They want everybody to finish the race at the same time, everybody. Mm -hmm. So if you have a profession, and we'll be talking about sex and gender later, but if you have a profession where, say, 70% uh, of the profession is male and 30% female, then that categorically means oppression for green. And it really won't accept any other explanation. And that becomes a staggeringly huge problem. And that is indeed um, a type of performative contradiction that does get involved in Popper's paradox. Because in essence, what you're saying is that all value systems are, are absolutely the same. There's no difference in value systems, except my value system that says that, that's the one correct one. Right. All the others are actually wrong. He said, wait a minute, you just said 
that none of them are better than the other. Well, forget that. I, I, I don't know what I mean. So that just wasn't addressed, and that became a real issue. Because even as Green started to demand equality and say it really valued inclusivity, um, it, it, it was really focused on um, identity politics and really tracking which groups are achieving equality and which ones aren't. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, identity politics becomes a fundamental way that you organize how you're looking at a culture. And since just historically, human beings being human beings, there was a long, long progression from where we started about a half million years ago, which was the only number of people that you really accepted were the number of people that were in your tribe. Right. And you were all related by kinship ties. You, you, you know exactly where you're related because you get with each other because you're all related to each other. And kinship ties determined the organization of the, uh, of the tribe. Originally, and we're not talking about any indigenous people alive today. They've continued to undergo evolution. But the original tribes, 500,000 years ago, when, and also they were relatively rare at the start, so they would only occasionally bump in to each other. And when they did, um, they had no idea how to actually relate with the other tribe because the kinship ties don't have any meaning. And so almost always other tribes were viewed as demonic or evil or threatening. And um, very frequently there was war, all out mm -hmm. warfare. And what that means, I mean, every member of the tribe fought. Men, women, it was just a, a free-for-all um, between tribes. There were only about 30 or 40 people in size mm -hmm. anyway. Um, but we went from that degree of organization to, at some point, tribes started actually coming together into large sort of super tribe organizations. And often that would happen with the emergence of mythic modes of thinking out of archaic and magic. Because what happens with a mythic idea, like the belief in Yahweh, is that now all of a sudden, if you're from a different tribe and have a completely different kinship lineage, so that you and I can't be brothers in any biological sense, but if we both believe in Yahweh, then we're both brothers of that true father. And so Yahweh, for example, could unite the 12 tribes of Israel into an actual coherent unit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that started increasing. And then those coherent tribes often came together with other tribes and we ended up with empires. Um, and empires eventually um, gave rise to sort of coherent um, nation states, and those would often then uh, certainly span in terms of trade interactions. Uh, and now we're uh, on the verge of, of, again, that sort of global village. Mm -hmm. And so what you see there is, is an unmistakable manifestation of the essential drive of the universe itself. I mean, going all the way back to the Big Bang, um, it's, it, it's, it's not the case that there are just four forces uh, 
in the physical world, which are often called strong, weak, nuclear, electromagnetic, and gravitational. Um, even many evolutionary biologists today, have, like Stuart Kaufman, um, have introduced the notion there's actually a fifth force in the universe, and they call it self-organization. Because there's no other real way to account for Darwinian evolution, uh, survival of the fittest, which we tend to emphasize just selfishness, but there's some other sort of drive happening there that actually draws people together into larger and larger and larger units. Mm -hmm. That's the same drive that starting at the Big Bang took small individual quarks, brought them together into electrons, protons, and neutrons, then took those, brought them together into atoms, took atoms, brought them together into molecules, took molecules, brought them together into living cells, took cells, brought them together into organisms, and on up the tree of life. I mean, that's an inherent drive in the universe. And the second law of thermodynamics um, can really be misunderstood, because all it really says is, if you take a hunk of the physical universe, not, not even really the living universe or our conceptual universe, just the physical material universe, cut it off from the rest of the universe, put it in a box and then watch it, it runs down. Mm -hmm. So fine. So that's supposedly everything, it, it, that's the drive that uh, everything is, is following. But it's not, if you let that out of the box and put it with the rest of the universe and then watch it over time, there's uh, Ilya Prigogine actually got the Nobel Prize for demonstrating that even matter itself, just insentient dead matter, when it becomes pushed far from equilibrium, it jumps into a higher order of, of structure. And it actually becomes more order. It's often called order out of chaos. Mm -hmm. That's a drive towards higher unity. And that's what we see in the universe, again, all the way back to Big Bang. And that's what's actually happening. So it, it happened all the way through, through evolution on Earth. And when hum, human beings showed up, we contained all of those previous holons in our own being. Quarks, atoms, molecules, cells, uh, reptilian brain stem, mammalian limbic system. And then we started undergoing our own stages of development. And um, Gebser's simple version, of course, archaic to magic, to mythic, to rational to pluralistic, relativistic, to integrated or, or, or integral. And that's part of the inherent drive that, that we see. The difficulty with grain, particularly as a leading edge, is it's still under that drive. It's still mm -hmm. being pushed by that drive. There are other drives as well. Um, I mean, we say all four, I mean, all, hold on to have all four drives. Right. The agency and communion horizontally, which mm -hmm. doesn't change levels, it just works within. And then you have vertical drives, you to drive to higher unity, we call eros. There's also um, a lower embracing drive. Um, and if that goes pathological, you actually get thanatos, actually, a drive. Actually, second law of thermodynamics is thanatos uh, operating. Um, so, so they were un, under that, that Eros pressure, and they did arrive at uh, consciously saying, we want inclusivity, we want diversity, and so on. But because of their emphasis on, on identity politics, part of the problem is that they look back at this long history 
of human unfolding that went to really very egocentric stages and into several stages ethnocentric. And again, only very recently, just a few hundred years ago, moved into world-centric stages. And so most grand postmodern multiculturalists, first of all, multiculturalism doesn't mean studying other cultures. It doesn't, most multiculturalists don't know a thing about other cultures. Um, all they know is that Western culture is demonic. It, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the planet and they're going to fix it. And they're going to fix it because unmistakably all history up through the emergence of modernity and the enlightenment and then for a, a, another hundred years or so as the principles of equality and freedom from the enlightenment began as i say being applied to more and more areas and finally arrives um, at at an orange and then green uh truly inclusive kind of structure but everybody's still born at square one and everybody even in an orange or green culture has to go through those egocentric into ethnocentric into world centric stages and not everybody makes it right and so we do have people that are ethnocentric stages of development and that's a problem now the problem with the postmodern multicultural solution is to simply say everybody must agree that we're all the same and they don't realize that their own value system itself is the product of around six major stages of nested hierarchical development that's right but because they want equality they deny all hierarchies entirely and they don't understand the difference between dominator hierarchies, which are all the horrible things that they say they are, and growth hierarchies, which are these stages that transcend and include and actually go from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric and integrated stages. So the very values that they're representing are the product of six hierarchical stages of development. And when they deny that hierarchy, they're shooting themselves in the foot Yep. or the head, but it's suicidal. Yep. They're, they're categorically killing the path to their own values. And that becomes problematic and also becomes sort of the foundation of their deeply self-contradictory orientation. So they're maintaining that all values, all groups are the same, but because they think that there's all these bad and problematic um, oppressed people out there misdiagnosing the cause of that mm. they simply pick the one group that they think are the great oppressors and these at least in the western world um do involve and we'll talk about this later but it's not white privilege it's minor majority privilege mm -hmm. which is exactly the same privilege every other culture around the world instills um and what happens as you start to move out of majority privilege is you'll start to extend again um, those rights, certainly of equal opportunity, 
for as many minorities and excluded, marginalized individuals as, as you can find. But the multicultural postmodern green far left uh, orientation, it really focuses on uh, things like white privilege and so-called toxic masculinity. And those are the causes of everybody else's problems. And so, first of all, all values are not the same because one group's values are mean, vicious, oppressive, tyrannizing, and toxic. Um, that's a complete misunderstanding of the core dynamics of human evolution and is simply sort of representative of uh, stages that are moving towards even more inclusive and it's certainly more inclusive than previous stages. Mm -hmm. I mean, have managed to get rid of, um, well, even in the United States today, it's categorically against the law to discriminate in any way against any minority. I mean, women say there's a wage gap. It's against the law to pay men more than women for the same job. If you do that, you go to jail. It's not allowed. And it, of course, it used to be back in the 40s and 50s that there was something of a wage gap because women hadn't themselves decided that they really wanted to move into the uh, productive sphere more. When that started to happen in the 60s and women started to do that, then the wage gap started closing fast. And in many cases, it, it's because we put sort of social pressures and some cases even laws um, into play. That uh, imbalance tended to shift. And in some cases, it's gone now in the other direction. So we will go over this uh, later as well on, on uh, sex and gender. Mm -hmm. uh, but in 19, you see it in education as well. You see it in uh, employment and pay. In 1970, 61% of college degrees were gotten by men and only 39% by women. Um, today, it's exactly reversed. 61% of college degrees in virtually every area are, are had by women. And men only get about 39%. Men are actually bailing out of higher education by the droves, yeah. um, in large measure because their toxic masculinity is how they're defined. Um, it's not a really welcome uh, atmosphere, uh, particularly for, for um, young men in, in their 20s. Um, and so that's a real issue. Um, the wage gap, uh, in, three years ago, Time Magazine, uh, working with uh, a lot of sophisticated polling organizations, um, looked at 150 of the largest cities in the country and looked at um, specific job comparisons, the actual work, compared the actual work among men and women, and they did find a wage gap. Uh, women got paid about 108% more than men across the board. Uh, in some the cities, it was more like 20% uh, advantage that uh, women were getting paid. So that's also kind of uh, flipped. Um, so we have to be really, really careful uh, about how we use 
theories, in some cases like feminism, uh, that arose in the 60s when there were still a lot more of those kinds of imbalances. Um, but culture still has this drive of errors, this drive to be more and more genuinely unified and inclusive. And so we set in motion items that would address that. And in many cases, those have been addressed. So it, it becomes a problem if we're still echoing statements that may have been true 50 years ago, but it's just categorically not that true now. Mm. So we really have to be careful about that. Right. Um, and you don't hear, by the way, feminists worrying about men only getting 39% of college degrees. There's no complaint about that. Um, and so as, as long as women just continue to get more than men, they're, they're happy. Um, so we really have to adjust how we're looking at these things. What happens when you, in terms of tolerance, when you get to second tier is among other things, second tier is looking at um, items from in a much broader perspective. So they're including areas, aspects, and dimensions that tend to be missed by first tier. Mm -hmm. One of the things the second tier takes into account are interior stages of development. So one of the first things that second tier will do when it looks at marginalization and oppressive forces is it won't say just what are the lower right social structural factors that might be contributing to that. But they'll look at the left-hand quadrants and say, okay, what stage of development are we at? Mm -hmm. Because those marginalizing, oppressive, tyrannical forces are almost exclusively at ethnocentric and lower stages. They're at absolutistic stages. When you think that your view is absolutistically right and others are wrong, and particularly if you have a group of like-minded ethnocentric people, then you feel absolutely justified in oppressing or marginalizing that other group because they're wrong, they're problems, they're even demonic if you happen to be religiously oriented. And by the way, almost everybody coming from an ethnocentric, absolutistic stage of development has some sort of fundamentalist belief. So you can be fundamentalist Marxist or fundamentalist white supremacist or fundamentalist feminist, and you actually have a religion and, and, and it's acted upon as a fundamentalist religion. Mm. And that's why um, it, you can hear some social commentators, studies have shown that people have an intuitive understanding of increasing stages of development. And so if you take like a standard model of development that has, let's say six or seven major stages of development that they recognize. And you write a paragraph coming from each of those stages. So there's a paragraph from red, a paragraph written in amber, a paragraph written in orange language, a paragraph written in green, paragraph in teal. Mix them up, show them to people and just tell people, arrange these in order of increasing sophistication. They'll get around 90% of them right. Even if they've never studied developmental psychology, don't know anything about it. 
So there's this kind of intuitive understanding that's happening. So one of the things that you see increasingly happening with social commentators who are really trying to figure out, there's this enormous confusion about why today's far left isn't liberal. And so many of the people like, let's say, Dave Rubin, that have been on the left as a real liberal all their lives and are, have now walked away from it, is they say that I don't, the left today isn't liberal, that they're illiberal, they're anti-liberal, and I don't get it. They've gone just completely insane. And it's becoming a real problem. Mm. And so they don't really know how to, to act with that. Many of them, of course, I, I think even like Dave Rubin, aren't quite comfortable calling themselves Republicans. Right. Because as Republican has unfolded, it, part of its base has included people that are coming up through Amber for the first time. Yeah. And so they're an ethnocentric in a sense, in a, it, it crazy as it might sound, but they're sort of there in a natural unfolding. Um, and it can be, of course, extremely vicious. And, and the classic sort of fascist orientation is an orientation that has an amber value system and will put it into play where the classic communist stance is a green egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is that we're seeing far extreme left green get more and more extremists and more zealot and more absolutistic. And so that's the main problem that I have with the far left today, yeah. that it's got this regressive trend. And as I was saying, there are a lot of social commentators that starting with uh, Marjid Nawaz, this, this uh, terrific liberal Muslim um, reformist, he started referring to, to that far left as the regressive left. Because he was intuiting that they're coming from amber. Right. And this is shocking because you never, ever, certainly in, even in my life when I was growing up, uh, child of the 60s, um, you never expected that kind of active, um, almost depressive um, intolerance coming from the left. Right. You always expected that from the right. To see it coming from the left was shocking. And that's what's happened to so many of, of the people um, from you know, Jordan Peterson to, to Dave Rubin, um, really focusing their criticism on the left. Mm -hmm. Even though the classic fascist, real white supremacists are the pure ethnocentric amber. No doubt about it. Um, well, um, we'll talk a little, a little bit, um, I think when we get to violence, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, on how that, um, if you just say sort of flat out, which is worse in terms of likelihood of, of um, oppression or violence or murderous aggression. Just straightforwardly, healthy green versus natural amber, no question, amber. No question, supremacists, fascists, that's bad. Mm -hmm. the, the problem historically is that 
we got a lot of green egalitarian philosophical ideas come along, were applied politically and got a regression to amber. And historically, that, which turns out to be communist organizations, have killed about 10 times more people than fascists. Right. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, so, um, but what happens with an integral tolerance is we say, okay, we not only need behavior that's tolerant and truly inclusive, but we need ways to help get people up to values that they themselves will be inclusive. You can't just say, you be this way. Right. It just doesn't work. Right. And that's one of the alarming things that, that has, unfortunately, we have learned as a categorically ironclad rule in developmental psychology is that you have to go through these stages. You can't skip them, you can't delete them, um, but they're there. And you can't talk somebody out of the stage they're at. That's right. You can't use evidence or logic or a nice fine reasoning. It won't work. Mm -hmm. Somebody once said you can't reason somebody out of anything that they weren't reasoned into. And states of development, you don't reason into it. You're not, you know, five years old at magic and go, I need to develop the mythic now and talk yourself into doing it. Nor if you're at you know, a magic mythic stage and somebody comes along and gives you all the arguments in the world that you should be rational logic. You, even if you understand the arguments, you shake your head, won't have any impact at all. It's not going to change your stage of development at all. Right. And unfortunately, Virtually none of the first tier stages give that much attention to interiors. Strangely, some are, are a little bit better than others. And paradoxically, ironically, weirdly, <clears throat> the only stage of development of all of them that denies stages of development is green. And it's our leading edge of cultural evolution right, right now. So, Thanks a lot for that, Green. And that's my problem. Otherwise, Green is healthy. It's extraordinary. It's an increase in perspectives. It's an incredible uh, attempt to really be inclusive. But because it doesn't have enough integrative components available, it crashes, this relativism crashes into a fragmented retribalization tendency if it goes extreme. And it goes extreme as soon as it starts failing at what it's trying to do. And it'll tend to fail at what it's trying to do because it's not yet at second tier. Right. So that's the main problem. And what we, um, that's one of the reasons that we've seen more polarization um, than literally at any time in history. And there have actually been specific, uh, almost um, empirically scientific studies on the amount of polarization in the United States from the very beginning all the way up to today. And, you know, it goes like this and it goes like this and today it's like that. It's horrifying. Right. And it really is a retribalization. It's group identity politics regressed back to an amber absolutistic stance. And that's really uh, becoming a uh, pretty nightmarish. Yeah.
Yeah, well said, Ken. You know, it feels to me like um, there's almost a new paradox of tolerance that the green altitude in particular is struggling with, which is, you know, look, there's a lot in today's world. There is a lot of uh, intolerance being emboldened today in a way that we haven't seen in decades. Yeah. And a lot of liberals, a lot of progressives, particularly at the green altitude, are feeling, you know, justify, justifiably so, they're feeling outrage at this sort of uh, resurgence of intolerance. But the, so, you know, for example, this past week, uh, Representative Steve King said something along the line, I'm paraphrasing here, said something along the lines of, you know, why is it that phrases like white nationalism and white supremacism are suddenly bad words? And it's like, dude, these have always been bad words. There's, <laughs> in, at least in terms of modern history, these have always been bad words. So, so the left has plenty of plenty of, of genuine intolerance that they're trying to push off of. The paradox they're falling into is that it's making them become genuinely intolerant themselves. That's right. They don't have and, a sense of yeah. developmental diversity. Right. Yeah. And that gives us the regressive left. That's right. um, and so I think it is important that we distinguish between um, liberal, which technically means that orange, rational, equal opportunity mm -hmm. type of equality. And realize that, that green far left today isn't liberal, almost by their own accounts. And that's causing, that's what, again, one of the most um, amounts of confusion that I notice is I listen to all these people talking about it. Because, I mean, everybody from Ben Richards to um, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson will say, uh, I, I'm not talking, when I say left, I don't mean liberal. I, I mean just progressive or left or they'll come up with other terms. So I think it's important to make that distinction. Yeah. So I tend to call the green left political orientation either green left uh, or progressive. It seems to be fine, mm -hmm. uh, but not liberal. Uh, because that, that really is, liberal is turning out to be one of three value systems. And it's odd because the whole point about the way healthy development is supposed to go is transcend and include. Mm. So when green emerged, it should, it can transcend equal opportunity and bring in a little bit of equal outcome. And I'll give a brief explanation of that in a minute. But it didn't do that. It got so upset with not having equal outcome that it wants to just take away equal opportunity. It wants to take away liberal orientations. And so it will restrict speech if it hurts somebody's feelings. They don't mind at all doing that. Mm -hmm. an, it's, the, the focus is no longer on anything like an individual liberty. It's group right. liberty and group right. identity. And that's it. And that's nightmarish. Now, the way they got that and the way the equal outcome has a little bit of important part to play. Um, and I know a lot of liberals and including the people like Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin and so on, categorically will say that equal outcome per se is just bad. And all you want is equal opportunity. But here, here's where equal outcome has a role to play. And that is, we've already acknowledged that not only historically, but in today's world, everybody's born at square one. Mm -hmm. 
And so the simplified stages that we're using, they'll go from egocentric stages into ethnocentric stages and then into world-centric stages. And it's only as they move into world-centric stages. And by the way, by some estimates, it varies depending on which model of developmental psychology you're using. Hmm. And those vary because each of them generally focus on a different multiple intelligence. So you have cognitive intelligence, moral intelligence, emotional intelligence. So, um, but depending on, on which of those models you look at, uh, some of them have uh, only about 30% uh, of the American population at truly world-centric stages of self-development. So Robert Kagan estimates, for example, that three out of five people don't make it to world-centric. So we've got some 60% of the population ready to be ethnocentric, um, including all the regressive left, by the way, because you still, as you're coming up, it's really easy to cognitively latch on to, you know, uh, uh, an in vogue, chic, multicultural uh, uh, value system as, you, as your center of gravity is still ethnocentric on the way up. So you're not even really regressive left in that sense. You're down there actually with the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis. That's where they actually are and that so are you. Right. Um, but the majority of the left that I'm criticizing regressive uh, left. Um, and uh, that um, as um, um, an issue um, becomes a problem in the culture um, because it's, um, it's an, uh, uh, an invitation for people on the way up to their own developmental unfolding um, to latch on to and allow their self-sense to just stay at ethnocentric because in a sense that's, that's what they're doing. That mm -hmm. retribalization makes sense down there. Um, and that really is is part of uh, part of an overall an overall problem with that. What you what you see as a postmodern progressive far left green political thinkers tend to address tolerance is they'll just come up unlike orange equal opportunity. They'll just come up with, well, Herbert Marcuse introduced a distinction between what he called liberating tolerance and repressive tolerance. And repressive tolerance is when you accept as many views as you can. And liberating tolerance is when you agree with his views. <laughs> so that's what you're supposed to tolerate. <laughs> and that's just a classic way that that ends up happening. Yeah. What I was going to say about equal outcome is that we do have people coming up and there is this tendency to ethnocentric prejudice and bigotry. Unfortunately, humans have to grow out of that. And of all the minorities, dozens and dozens of what can be considered minorities, ethnic differences, and uh, even people that, um, you know, are now one of 300 genders, uh, you know, which we'll talk about. Um, sure. <laughs> but um, 
the two that you can tell just immediately when you meet somebody is whether they're black or white and whether they're man or woman. Mm -hmm. So those two differences become major ones that an ethnocentric orientation will latch on to. Right. Um, and that's just, an, again, it's kind of a natural stage that we have to go through. But those in particular, it's like if you meet somebody that, um, it, it, let's say, is a white person, but they might be speaking, you know, something Polish, or they might be speaking Hungarian, or they might be speaking Brazilian, or something like that. You really can't tell what ethnic they're. All you know is that they're sort of talking different. Um, but if, they, if they're talking English, even with an accent, you, you can still sort of relate to them. And there's there's no immediate obvious prejudice that you can bring into play, except well, they're foreigners if you want to do it that way. But somebody's black or white in this country. Um, or male or female, you know it immediately. And it's a very, very easy way to really group all of those types together. All of them. I mean, if you're a man who's having trouble with women, all women. It's not hard to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. And if you're a white guy has trouble with black folks, or vice versa, black person has trouble with white, you don't have any trouble spotting them. They're clear. And so that has really, and because everybody's coming up to those stages, those two in particular, which are called racism and sexism, those have really been kept alive because those are real issues that are really there. And the problem is you have to really be careful when, if you're just condemning everybody for doing that, or whether you're acknowledging there are world-centric and integral stages of development that don't do that. Not only are integral stages not doing it, they're actually thinking of ways that can overcome that. There are mm -hmm. ways that actually work. But otherwise, you're going to tend to exaggerate the amount of ethnocentric oppression that there is in this country. So just a quick example, and I did not mean to pick on this particular group or organization. I could pick on any of them, and I'm sure we will at some point. Black Lives Matter started because of violence, police violence on unarmed black people. Now, that's a tragedy by any perspective. But the number of, in 2015, the number of unarmed black men killed by policemen were 16, 16. So you're, there's some 13% um, of the population uh, in this country are black. So that's I, over 30 million. So if you want to make your major social concern that 16 out of 30 million people were hurt, by the way, more people die each year of bee stings. Go ahead, make right. that your main social focus. But don't let that overlook other areas that are affecting a large number of your race or your ethnicity or your gender or sex or whatever it is. And it's that hyper exaggeration. Now, I have no doubt at all that simply being black and being in an urban area that the cops are going to, many of them are going to at least look at you differently, are going to give you uncomfortable feelings. I got it. It's the same thing that women 
will come up with when they look at their interaction with men and men are always sort of more pushy and more in their face and are hitting on them and they don't do that to men. So they're very disposed to say those, those things make me uncomfortable. That doesn't mean therefore that person's intentionally trying to oppress me and hold me out of jobs and is paying me less for the same work I do. So we have to be very careful about that. But those kinds of feelings, which are real, mm-hmm. but aren't against the law, aren't really holding somebody back or doing anything like that. It's, if there's anything that does break the law, like I say, if you really do pay a man differently from a woman for the same job, you get fined or go to jail. That right. is against the law yeah. in this country. But to just take the atmosphere of uncomfortable differences and expand that up into a criminal activity, which the extreme green tends to do. That's part of what's driving, driving this retribalization. That's what makes the automatic way I look at anybody else is how they're hurting me or oppressing me or tyrannizing me or something. Mm-hmm. And that leaves one group of people as the bad guys. Right. And that's white cisgendered men. Yep. And that's, um, that will backfire. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just to prove that we are, uh, in fact, equal opportunity offenders here, I think the same argument could be made on the other side of the aisle where, you know, for example, last year, uh, a, the number of people killed by illegal immigrants was smaller than the number of people who were killed by lettuce. By, I don't see anyone declaring a national emergency around, <laughs> about our, you know, lettuce right. in this country. Um, so Ken, that, that, was, that was fantastic. And I love how you tracked sort of the, the emergence of this idea of tolerance from orange into green and into teal and turquoise while reminding us that, you know, every step along the way, we really do need this sort of, it's, it's, it's tolerance with a boundary. Right. There's only so much that we are expected to tolerate before the entire sort of engine of development begins to break down. The barbarians raid the gates and, and suddenly there's no more tolerance anywhere because nobody can make it to green anymore. 